Amen. Well, thanks for being with us here today. It's great to see you, whether you're hanging out in the room or like Pastor Andrew said, you might be at home watching online or maybe you're in your car driving later, right, catching up. We're glad that you've chosen to spend part of your weekend or part of your week worshiping along with us and learning along with us today. Uh, if you if we haven't met, my name is Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at GFC. I'm really excited that you joined us today because this is the beginning of a new sermon series. It's actually the last sermon series that we're going to do before we get to Christmas, if you can believe that or not. Christmas is coming. I think it's 10 Sundays away. So just start shopping, right? Get your stuff done because it's coming. So we're talking about this idea. It's called His Name is Jesus. And how do we get here? I'll fill you in just in case you weren't here at the beginning of the year. Uh, If you walk in or as you walk out today or when you walked in, you saw that there's a big sign on the back wall of the lobby that says this, Hope has a name. And we actually started having this conversation over a year ago. There's a group of churches that we're associated with, and there are a certain group of us that we will get together. We actually have a meeting coming up this week to get together and to look at sermon series for the coming year. And one of the things that we do in that process is we kind of think about a theme. What, where do we want to go? What's kind of the overarching thing that we want to talk about this year. And so we started having that conversation over a year ago, and the conversation quickly moved to, we think hope is something that people need. Like, if you, if you think about it, if you look back at, at the decades of just what we, where we've been over the last, you know, since like the 1940s, 1950s, if you go back to that time frame, optimism was kind of more the idea of the time. People were excited. Coming out of World War II, so that's a good thing, right? We won that, and so we're going to progress out of that. Troops are coming home. There's, there's things they had to figure out there. But when we were moving forward, like industry was moving forward, uh, we were trying to get to the moon. I think that happened. Maybe you don't. Some people dis- <laughs> disagree on that. But we, we go that direction. And so there was this optimism moving forward. Life was going to get better. Industry was going to grow. The economy was going to get better. All of those things. And then it shifted. And somewhere like 90s, 2000s, maybe around there, things started to change a little bit. And the overall kind of flavor of culture was kind of, I don't like where things are going. And I've had a lot of conversations with people that either are parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or whatever. And they kind of will look at the world at different times and they'll go, I'm worried for my children. Or I'm worried for my grandchildren. Because I'm worried about where culture is going and what they're going to have to deal with and what decisions they're going to have to make. And the reality is I get that. I get why that's happening and why we're having that conversation. But if you go back to each generation and you ask if they were worried for their kids or not, usually they would say, Yes. So some things don't change over time, right? We look at the world and we say, I didn't know how to deal with that as a kid. Now my kids have to figure it out. That's scary to us as people who have kids or nieces or nephews or grandkids that are going through those kinds of things. So we said, we want hope to be something that's obvious, right? We want something that we want to be able to call back to and say, the church is the place and Jesus is the place that we find hope. And so we said, let's make this the conversation that hope has a name, and we believe that that name is Jesus, and we want to call people back to that. We want to remind ourselves of that. We want to say, even when we look at culture and say, we're worried about that, we want to look at Jesus and say, we're not worried about him. We want to focus there, and we want to find that. And so we're, this is a conversation that then comes back around, so hope has a name, his name is Jesus. And what we've done over the years, we've gone through the book of Luke. We haven't hit every verse, we haven't hit every chapter, but we've largely gone through and done a good overview of the book of Luke. And so now we're coming in to Jesus' final days. 
We've worked our way to the last few chapters of Luke. And so this conversation over the next six weeks with a pit stop on November 5th for our Parent Sunday, because that's going to be a standalone. But we're going to do about six weeks where we look at kind of the last days of Jesus. And what would be his conversation with us? What was his conversation with the disciples? What do we learn from him as he moves towards a time that actually wouldn't be very hopeful? And I want to stop for a minute and just kind of ask a couple of very, not very deep questions, but maybe we would just should stop and pause and like think about them as we process. The first thing is this, who was Jesus? Now you're like, Pastor Corey, do we have to start here? But yes, like let's start here for a minute. Because I think if we grow up in church, like many of us probably did, or we have this idea from culture about who Jesus is and what he was. A lot of times I think we focus so much on Jesus was God, which is very important, very true, and should be the forefront of what we're thinking. But we almost kind of forget about the humanity he experienced. And maybe sometimes we think about, well, Jesus was just God in like a flesh box, And so, like, he kind of had a body, and he was a person, and he was here physically, but, like, he didn't understand, or he didn't get it, or he didn't feel what I feel. But what Scripture teaches us is that he felt all of those things and experienced all of those things. He got hungry. He got tired. He was sad. He cried. He probably fell down and scraped his knee when he was a kid. All of those things he understood And so when we process that and we look at, okay, we've traveled through the book of Luke, we get to the point where Jesus is in Jerusalem and he knows he's not leaving Jerusalem. He knows he's here to die. How would you feel as a person? And you've spent the last three years ministering, building up followers, connecting with disciples, teaching people, telling these parables we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. All of those things, and now you're coming into like the last few days. And so this is the conversation we're going to have over the next few weeks. And this is then the next logical question I think it leads us to. What can we learn from his final days? Maybe some of you have had the opportunity to maybe sit with someone that you love as they're kind of exiting this world. And you've sat with them and you've said maybe, uh, what would you want me to know? What would you teach me? I actually watched a a video on YouTube the other day that was a guy who, um, he actually travels around and and makes YouTube videos. That's what he does. He just gets paid to do that. Wouldn't that be awesome? So that's what he does, and he gets to do that. But his grandfather had this old 1950 VW bug, or not a bug, it was a VW van that he worked on and restored. And so he said, would you take a camping trip with me in this VW van that they were going to sleep in? And so he did this all to be, he did it just with his grandfather because his grandmother refused to go. But he did it with his grandfather so that he could sit down with them and say, what would you teach? He was 88 years old and he said, I just want to learn from you. I just want to get to know what you think. I want to know. And his grandfather's not on the way out. I mean, he was hiking and doing all kinds of great stuff. But he said, I know my time is limited. So listen, this is the conversation Jesus is having. He's going, I know my time is limited with you. This is what I need you to know. This is what I need you to understand before I leave. That's why these words are so important, and that's why Luke kept them and said, I want to pass them down to you. And so when we come into this conversation over the next few weeks, I want us to kind of come with that idea. Like, what was Jesus teaching right before he left? What did he want us to know? And what was so important for his disciples before he left this earth? The last things he would say 
so that we could catch them and understand exactly what he wanted us to know. So here's where we're going to go. We're going to go to Luke chapter 20. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. So we, we were in Luke 20 last week. We're going to kind of refresh our, our memories on where we were. And then the story that we're going to have today actually just comes out of that conversation. It's kind of a continuation of what was going on. So starting in Luke 20, verse 18, by the way, if you want to follow along on our website, you can do that. Go to gracefamily.cc, gracefam.cc, and then you'll find the follow along link, or you can scan the QR code that's on the screen or on the back of your Next Steps card. And you can follow along, get all the verses and all the notes there. So in Luke 20, starting in verse 18, it says this, Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. Okay, quick recap in case you missed last week and you want to just know where we were at. Jesus tells the parable of the farmers. So there's the owner of the farm. He lets the farmers work the farm while he's away. But then he says, I want what's due to me because it's my land and you're supposed to pay me a percentage of what you farm. So when, they send, when he sends his people back, the, people, the farmers that are there, they beat them up. They send them away. They say, we're not giving you any money. Finally, the owner sends his son. And so then they see the son coming. They say, we want the land for ourselves. We don't want the son to come take it. We don't want the owner to have rights to it. So they kill the son. And this is a story, and the religious leaders of the time, they knew this is the story, uh, this story was about them, and that God was unhappy with what was going on, and that's what Jesus was saying, and that made them upset. And this is where Jesus lands that plane. He says, everyone who stumbles over the stone, Jesus is the stone, and we talked about that last week, will be broken to pieces, it will crush anyone it falls on. And here's the two ideas here. I talked about last week, it's kind of like if, even if you're pursuing God, but you're on the wrong path. What we, what we think we can do is if we pursue God, we can kind of set up hurdles for ourselves. And if we just jump over those hurdles, if we can make it over those hurdles and we get to the end of our life, if we made it over those things, if we didn't murder people, if we didn't steal, if we didn't whatever, we will get to heaven and God will say you're good enough. And the idea is that if you try and just get to God without Jesus, you're going to stumble. Even if you're trying to pursue him, but Jesus isn't the way, you're going to stumble. But then the other side of it is people that just deny Jesus completely, the weight of his authority will crush them. Because they'll end up standing before him one day and they won't know him and they'll realize what they missed along the way. Now this is not a happy-go-lucky conversation. This is not the fun part that we talk about. But it's the reality. It's what Jesus talks about. So he goes on. In verse 19, it says, Then the teachers of religious law, the leading priests, who wanted to, they wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. And they were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. So they want, in that moment, they want to take Jesus out. We're tired of these stories. We're tired of them being about us. We're tired of this disrespect. We want to get rid of them. The problem is Jesus has a lot of people who really like him. They're following him. They're listening to him. They want the miracles. They want to have, some of them just want free lunch, honestly, but they want to be around him. They want to know him. So if they jump in and they say, we're going to take him out, the people are going to revolt against them. That's their problem. So they've got to figure out another way. So in verse 20, it says, watching for their opportunity, the leaders sent spies pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so he would arrest Jesus. So they start to make this plan. I don't know if they had like a little huddle up and they start to have this conversation. They go, what can we do? So they say, let's make him say something that's going to make the Romans mad. So just a reminder of the climate at the time. 
Roman Empire is thriving. They are in power and there is no stopping them. And the Israelites find themselves underneath the Roman Empire. And so the Romans would kind of allow the Jews to police themselves to an extent. They didn't really want to get involved. They would allow them to make decisions. They would allow them to do their thing. But then once, if there was disrespect towards the Romans, then they would put their thumb on them. And so the Pharisees go, okay, well, great. If we can just get Jesus to say something that will make the Romans mad, then we're not the bad guy. They'll, they'll step in, they'll take Jesus out, and then we can just kind of play dumb and go, oh, no, we didn't want Jesus to get hurt either. And then the people won't be mad at them. So they're trying to rearrange this so that the Romans will do their dirty work for them. So they, get, they come up with this plan. They send these spies, and this is what the spies say in verses 21 22. Teacher, they said, we know that you speak and teach what is right and are not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, first of all, can you just feel how slimy these guys are? Teacher, they're like trying to like suck up to him. You guys are such weirdos. Why are you even doing this? So they come in, they butter him up, and then they have this real quick turn. We know you teach the truth, so tell us this. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, remember what we just talked about, the climate of the time. The Romans would tax the Israelites. Now, we don't like, nobody likes taxes, right? If we took a straw poll, everybody would wish we didn't really have to pay as many taxes as we do. But they would get even heavier taxes because this is government on top of government. So not only are you just like having to do your own thing that you're called to in your own culture— But now you've got this other empire coming along and saying, and we're going to put our thumb on you too because we need to supply our empire to be able to conquer more people and whatever. So not only are you making sure that your city and everything keeps running, but now you're paying into this greater thing that you don't believe in and it's a problem. So everybody hated this system. Nobody was happy in this. And like we've talked about before, what they really hoped was that the Messiah was going to come along and just overthrow the Romans. So this is a trap for Jesus because, number one, if he says, yep, just pay your taxes, the people around him are not going to like him. The Jews are going to be very unhappy because if you supported the Roman government at all, you were seen as a traitor, just like the tax collectors. So if he says, yeah, sure, pay your taxes, that's a problem, and the people will be mad at Jesus, and then the religious leaders don't have a problem anymore because the people won't like him. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes, well, then what they really hope is going to come, and the Romans are going to get mad. And if he's going around teaching people not to pay their taxes, now the Romans are going to have an issue with him, and they'll take him out, okay? This was a very, very difficult time, uh, a difficult question, I should say. And everybody's listening. This is not like they come knocking on his door late at night and go, Jesus, can you just tell us? No, this is like when you are in a large crowd and somebody yells out a really difficult question and as as a surprise and everybody kind of feels the tension in the room. So everybody's listening. This is going to be heard for a lot of people. So in verses 23 to 25, it says, he saw through their trickery and said, show me a Roman coin whose picture and title are stamped on it. Caesar's, they replied. Well, then he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to to God. Verse 26. So they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed by his answer and they became silent. Now, this is where, like, if you're the religious leaders, you're like, guys, like, press him a little bit. At least try. But they, they're so, like, they realize how wise the question is, they just kind of shut up. They're like, okay, that was, we tried our best. That's not going to work out. 
And so Jesus gives this answer. And I think it's really interesting that this is where they start the conversation. They, they come up, we, we figure the, the religious leaders, they get in this huddle. They're like, how do we trap him? And they go immediately to like government and politics. Find that interesting? We would say in our culture, that's a very divisive thing. But here's the reality. It's always been a divisive thing. It's always been a reality. And I would even say government and politics have always been points of tension for followers of Jesus. It's always been. Because Jesus casts a very broad net. There's people that find themselves from different camps, different belief systems, different opinions on different topics and all kinds of stuff. And Jesus is a common denominator for a lot of those people. And so one of the things that they wanted to do is they wanted to, in order to get rid of Jesus, in order to put him in some boiling water, they say, well, let's go to religion and politics. I see this with pastors too. People want to get somebody, they go, well, let's attack their politics or let's go after them here, right? We, we see this all the time. And so this isn't new. Jesus had to deal with this too. And I think that his answer is really, really telling. And it's actually really, really straightforward. And so we just take his answer and split it in two sentences. He says, first, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. What's he saying? Pay your taxes and obey the laws. That's what he's saying. He goes, let me, let me look at what, give me that coin. Let's see it. He says, whose picture's on it? Caesar. His picture's on it. If we wanted to really go down this rabbit hole and, and kind of look at what Scripture says about, about government, what we have to realize is God's a part of establishing every government that's in place. We don't like that sometimes because we look at that government, wherever it is, wherever it may be, and we go, we don't like what they're doing. But what Scripture tells us is no one gets their power except if God is allowing it and situating it. And, and so we go, okay, but so there's something going on, and we have to say, okay, God's in it. So if they have, Jesus is ultimately saying, if they say that you have to pay a certain amount of money, that's what we do. People didn't like it. We don't like it. And one of the silly things is, like, if I have to put it, if I want to put a shed in my backyard, am I, do I feel weird that the township has to know, just being honest. There's little things and there's big things. There's big things we would disagree on. There's little things like, yeah, I have to tell the township, whatever. Like, there's those things where we just kind of go, really? Like, I have to? And Jesus kind of goes, yeah. They've decided it. They have, they're in that role. That's kind of what we have to do. Do we like it? No. But he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If that's his place where he can make that decision, then that's what we have to give him. Okay, so then what's on the reverse side? Give to God what belongs to God. So what belongs to God? Worship, devotion, and adoration. If we look at the early church, this is where really this, this really came together. If we look at the early church, they were still living under this system. Roman government was still in place. They found themselves in a very difficult position. The church thrived under persecution from the Jews and the Roman government. I mean, it was a crazy time for them. And they lived under the Roman government as much as they could. And there was one thing that would get in the way. And we've heard the stories of, uh, you know, Christians being crucified and then lit on fire to illuminate the gardens. And we've heard stories of Christians that were thrown into the Colosseum and, had, and were eaten by lions and all that stuff. Do you know why all those things happened? It wasn't because of the taxes. It was because the Caesars would come along and say, you need to pledge your allegiance to us. And they would say, no, I will only worship Jesus. That's where they drew the line. 
okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do what you say or we'll, we'll do what we know we need to do, but we're going to not listen to you there or we're going to make sure we pay this or we're going to make sure we follow it to that point. But when it comes to the point where you're going to tell us we have to worship you and not Jesus, that's where we draw that line. And so Jesus says, what belongs to God in our lives? Our worship, our devotion, our adoration, right? The government comes along and says, you have to obey this new law. You have to follow it. I'll give you a simple example. Someone changes the speed limit somewhere. Someone's not going to be happy. Yet we look at that and we go, I have to follow it. And Jesus says, when the government comes along and does something, whether you like it or not, like the goal, as long as they're not taking what belongs to God, we learn from it, we do it. And in doing so, what did he do with this question? He said, listen, you give over here, you give them the honor they're due, or you follow them where they're supposed to, but you don't give them what belongs to God. And as long as they're not taking what belongs to God, you worship and adore and have your devotion to him. And that's why when they looked at that, they go, we don't know how to answer that. I don't know, how, I don't know what my next question is. Because Jesus took that situation and said, here's how we handle it. They tried to divide him. They tried to draw this line. And Jesus says, no, we can have both. And so they go on, and there's a new group that comes to him. In verses 27 and 28, So then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders, who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. So let me give you some background before we keep going. This is another very divisive question. The Sadducees, we'll hear, we'll hear the phrase uh, or the, the groups Pharisees and Sadducees many times in the same sentence. Many times they were around. Here's, here's how the system worked. The Pharisees and Sadducees were both religious leaders, but they had different views on things. And they both had seats on the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like the Supreme Court. So the Pharisees believed in all of the Old Testament, and they would also teach the Talmud, which was kind of like the verbal law, okay? So they would take our typical Old Testament, they would lean into that and add the Talmud to it. The Sadducees really only believed in the law or the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses wrote all those books. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to divide Jesus on a theological issue. So they want to know what his stance is because they know if he gravitates towards one side or the other, it's going to divide the room. They're going to find themselves broken into fractions and people are going to be upset at him and they're going to try and divide him. So they give him this question, right? Moses gave us a law. If a man dies, leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child to carry on the brother's name. Okay, so let's keep going. 29 to 30. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, and he also died. 31 to 33. Then the third brother married her. This continued continued with all seven of them who died without children. Finally, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Now, if I'm Jesus, my first question would be, why is this such a specific question? who do you know that's in this predicament and why do I have to answer this for you? It's very weird. So they ask this question. You got seven brothers. They all marry her. This is, this is interesting. And their question, the thing that set the Sadducees apart as well, besides just believing in the, in the law, the first five books of the Bible, they did not believe in an afterlife. It's interesting. 
So the Pharisees did. They believed that there would be an afterlife. The Sadducees did not. And so they're asking this question to get to that afterlife conversation because this doesn't make sense to them. If there's an afterlife and they're married, well, then who are they married to? That's why in their brains it's like, well, clearly there's no afterlife because this all gets very, very messy very quickly. By the way, this is a question I get. Some people will come and ask me if my spouse has passed and I get married, who will I, you know, and I, who will I be married to? And, and we're going to get Jesus' answer, okay? So in verses 34 to 35, it says, Jesus replied, marriage is for people here on earth. But in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Verse 36, and they will never die again. In this respect, they will be like angels. They are children of God and children of the resurrection. So if you've ever wondered that question, short answer is we're not going to be married in heaven. It's not the case. And some of that is because we are like marriage on earth is a fulfillment and a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church and our relationship to God. So when we, if we are followers of Jesus and we're in heaven, our relationship with God is back where it needs to be. And so we will be fulfilled relationally in our connection with God. It's not there. Now, some people get sad about that, right? I think you've been sad about that before, which I feel really nice about that you would be sad about that. But it's kind of that, but I, I love my spouse. Like I want to be married to them forever. That's why I said I do. And that's great. And I, I don't think that we won't know each other. We'll be, we'll be neighbors. Okay, does that work for you? So we'll, like, you connect and you'll be there. I think we'll know each other. But marriage isn't going to be part of it. It's just not the, it's not the reality. And so we, that's why we lean into marriage here on earth. It's why it's so important. It's why it's a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. We want to love each other well as Christ loved the church. And then we will understand really what that means. We pursue that on earth, but we'll understand what it means in heaven. And so he says, it's not going to be that way, but we're going to be like the angels. We're going to understand the relationship with God that way. And the children will be like children of God in the resurrection. So in verse 37, it says, but now as to whether the dead will be raised. So then he goes, let me answer this question for you, Sadducees, because you have this understanding of the afterlife that we have to talk about. It says, even Moses, which again, wrote the books that they hold on to, proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham and the God of God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living in verse 38 and not the dead for they are all alive to him. Well said teacher remarked some of the teachers of religious law who were standing there and then no one dared ask him any more questions. So he takes this divisive question again and says, let me answer for you, right? I'll I'll tell you. And he said, and he reinforces. So by the way, if anybody ever comes to you and says, well, we don't need to believe in an afterlife or Jesus didn't teach an afterlife. Just go back to this question. Jesus taught that there is something after this world. And he even gives us qualifications and understanding of how that's going to work and, and different details. And so he says, this is how we understand it. And he, and he says, Moses taught this because he goes back to those five books that the Sadducees actually believed. But he takes this divisive question. He says, it doesn't need to be divisive. Like, let's focus on what's important. And then he he asks his own question to kind of wrap up the passage we're going to look at today. In in verses 41 to 43, it says, Then Jesus presented them with a question. Why is it, he asked, that the Messiah is said to be the son of David? For David himself wrote in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Verse 44 to 45, Since David called the Messiah Lord, 
How can the Messiah be his son? Then with the crowds listening, he turned to the disciples and he said, in verse 46, Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and love to receive the respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Verse 47, Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. So he frames this whole conversation and says, let me ask you a question. And he goes back to Psalms and says, when David writes this, he says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now that feels very redundant, doesn't it? But here's how we get that. There are four names of God in the Hebrew language. And in this particular passage, what David is writing is Yahweh is saying to Adonai. Both names of God, both equal, but different roles. And so Yahweh, God the Father, is saying to Adonai, we understand as Jesus, saying, you take the second chair. You sit here, and, and I will take down your enemies for you. They are equal, and yet Jesus takes that second chair to God. Right? We see that in his life, that he would look at God the Father and say, not my will, but yours be done. And then he goes a step further, and Jesus says, how then does David get to say that the Messiah would come from him? Isn't that interesting? That Jesus would say, I'm going to put myself as the kind of the son of David coming through his lineage, even though David was a flawed human. And Jesus says it's, it's not the status. It's not being right that's important. And he, he paints this picture of being willing to say someone else's will comes before mine, that I, I would put myself in a place where I'm not grabbing all the accolades. I'm not grabbing all the things I need to or I have rights to, but I'm going to put myself in this position. And in doing so, I'm going to show you how to be a servant. And he says, the people that come and ask these questions, they love to be right. They love to be the ones who are known as the righteous ones. They love to be the ones that get all the honor. They love to be the ones that find themselves at the head of the table. And we listened at, you know, a few weeks ago, Pastor Andrew shared, and we looked at the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. And the Pharisee saying, oh, thank goodness I'm not like that tax collector. And they elevate themselves. And Jesus says that that's, that's not the way to do it. And at times we can find ourselves all wanting to do this. I fall into this trap. I like being right. And I've told you before, I like a good argument. If you come up and just drop some kind of like theological conversation, like I will maybe take the opposite of what I believe just to have a fun conversation with you. I have to be careful of this. Because I like to be right. And Jesus is showing us, like, that, that's not the point. And he says these teachers that are trying to be right, that are trying to divide, that are trying to get into it, he says that's not the point of the conversation. And so I would say this, that being cons more concerned with status, like these teachers were, than compassion is a sign of false faith. Remember what they said. He said they will even take from widows. They, they come in and they'll take what they need. They'll be like, oh, no, I have to hold you to the line. If you don't follow the rule, this is a problem. I've got to hold you to it. And they don't have compassion. And it creates a sense of false faith because we can fall into this. When we are good at following all the rules or doing all the right things or making sure that we are making, like we make sure that we've got all our tally marks done and we got all stuff, we can think we're in a really good spot, but our heart can be in an awful spot. And I would say this, that what Jesus was guarding against is the fact that false faith is, is hopeless. If we think, and this kind of goes back to last week too, because it's an overflow of last week's conversation. If we think that we can 
have our standing with God correct because of what we can do or the check marks we've got, we've missed it. It's hopeless because we're not good enough. It's not what we're called to. And Jesus doesn't even call us to follow all the rules perfectly. It's not what he calls us to. And Jesus actually offers us a greater calling. I would explain it like this. One of the things that makes things hopeless sometimes is this idea or is this fact that we feel like we have to be right. And if we're not right, then this is a problem because if we're not right, then we're not comfortable. And if we're not comfortable, then somebody else has to be right. And if somebody else is right and I don't like that person, then that's a real problem. We get in this spiral of like, this is what's going on. And it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. And we want to be right. And this is where these people come along, the teachers come along, and they look at Jesus and they go, we want you to, we're trying to get you. Or we want you to approve what we say. Or we want you to say something that's going to get you in trouble because we think we're right. Whenever this kind of false faith or this, this kind of thing comes along and people feel they need to be right all the time and we put our hope in the wrong place, usually for followers of Jesus, when we put our hope in the wrong place, division will follow. Because we find ourselves saying we're going to hold on to ideas and preferences and thoughts rather than saying let's listen to Jesus. Now, I, I've probably used this illustration way too many times, but my best friend in the world he believes things different, differently theologically than I do. And guess what? That's fine. Because he, we, be, we believe in Jesus as the center of that conversation. If you asked him and you asked me, how do we get to heaven? We're going to give you the same, the same answer. Outside of that, he believes some different things. But we look at that commonality and we say that's what's important. So like, if we go back to the two conversations that were had with Jesus, let's just politically... Right, let's just go there for today, right? If we had somebody that votes Democrat and someone votes Republican, can both those people get into heaven? Yup. Like if they know Jesus, they can. Someone that's married, someone that's not married, can they both get into heaven? Yes. Someone that believes something differently or is from a different culture or does different things, like thinks about raising their kids differently than someone else, and we say, yeah, like there's differences there that we can see and understand and we can have conversations about, whatever. But do we know Jesus? What's the commonality? And he's got this higher calling that we want to understand and know him because anything else added to faith in Jesus is unnecessary and misleading. And the Pharisees come along, the Sadducees come along, and they go, yeah, but this has to be right. And Jesus goes, no, I'm right. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the most important thing that we can understand. And, he, and here's what I know, that pursuit of Jesus will always lead us to prioritize him and not our preference. Preferences sneak in real quick. And they can become the main thing in our hearts and minds real fast. And Jesus says that's not supposed to be the main thing. And when preferences, listen, when preferences become the main thing for us, division follows. That's what happens. And when division is in place, when we feel divided, there's not a lot of hope in that. And we, as a church, the, as GFC, but also as the church who understands and knows Jesus, even in the spaces where we disagree, if we really know Jesus, we should be unified in many more ways than we are divided. Because we hold to that hope. And not something that's a preference that we've decided on.
I have one question, and I would just say this in wrapping up our conversation. I have one question for us. Don't put hope in places it doesn't belong. Just, this is, I don't know that this is the way that we think about this sometimes. I think we just do it without processing it. But we will put our hope in things sometimes pretty quickly. Like maybe you've been in a relationship where you've been like, yeah, I hope this person's going to fulfill this thing that I'm hoping they will do or I want to connect with them this way or whatever. And then all of a sudden they're like, I'm out. And all of a sudden we, we lose hope. Or we think that maybe this job is going to come through and we get real excited about it. We're like, I got it, I got it, I got it. And then it comes back and we don't. We got to be real careful where we're putting our hope. And what we really believe is going to make a difference. And how, who we're trusting in, in the ebbs and flow of life. And I would say simply just don't put hope in places it doesn't belong. Our hope should be very simple. It should be in a person named Jesus. Anything outside of that, when we grab onto it, it can easily let us down. So here's my simple question. I just want, to, I want us to like kind of evaluate for today. Do you feel hopeful or do you feel hopeless? This is a loaded question, depending on where you're sitting. I don't know what's going on at work. I don't know what's going on in family. I don't know what's going on with how you perceive the world. I don't know. But I know some days we can wake up and we're like super hopeful. And some days we can wake up and we feel super hopeless. And my question would simply be, where's your hope? What are you holding on to? And how is that affecting where you're at? Because who you're listening to and what you're putting your hope in is going to affect the lens through which we see the world. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't put your hope in something other than me. Put your hope in me and let's move forward. It's hard to do. And and one of the things that we're processing, um, especially with the Parent Sunday Pastor Andrew told you about, is that Kids feel this. Like, we feel this, but kids feel this. And if you're a parent when, or, or a grandparent, if you feel it, your kids can feel it too, like through you. And they're asking themselves this question. And they're looking at us to answer it. Like, where do I find hope in the world? They're asking themselves that. Whether they're verbalizing it to you or not, they're asking this question. And we're supposed to be the answer. Because we are supposed to lead them to Jesus. And so if you're feeling hopeless, have a conversation. Just pray for a while, but you can have a conversation with somebody. Say, this is, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm dealing with. How do I process it? Find a way to place that hope somewhere it belongs and not somewhere it doesn't belong. You know, as Jesus has this conversation, like I said at the beginning, beginning of the conversation today, He's moving towards the crucifixion, a time that would feel very, very helpless and hopeless for the disciples. And in that, he helps them understand, but this is the hope that's going to come through it. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations that are like, this is really difficult and and maybe even feeling hopeless. And yet Jesus says, but if you hold on to me, I will not fail. I won't let you go down. I've got you. So there's going to be days where things feel hopeless. It's frustrating. It's hard. It's sad. But Jesus is that hope. And so we want to echo that conversation again as we close out this year. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. 
We want that to sink deep into who we are and how we live our lives and how we see the world. And if that's hard, I get it. But I would challenge you to spend some time processing that. Where am I putting my hope? What does that look like? And see what Jesus might do when you shift your hope and say, I'm going to place it in him and not somewhere it doesn't belong. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful for uh, these words from Luke that he grabs onto this at the end of uh, your days here on earth and helps us understand what you were teaching in your final days. That even as these people are coming along trying to trip you up, trying to get you to say something that's going to move things in a direction they want, you still were there steady, helping people understand and helping people to understand the hope that is in you. And we are grateful that even in these conversations that can be so divisive if we put our hope in the wrong place, that you just are that factor that just calms. And you just say, give to God what belongs to God. And I, and I pray that that would be our, our answer in life, that we would give to you what belongs to you and we would let the chips fall wherever they may go, but that we would trust you as our hope. I pray that if we're sitting here or listening wherever we are at home or we're driving along wherever we are, that if we're feeling this hopelessness, that you would give us a clear path forward to place our hope in you. And that these feelings of hopelessness, of, of pain or of fear or of loneliness or whatever it might be, that you would replace those with joy. And we would find ourselves having a hope that we don't even understand because now we've placed our hope in the right place. And I pray that that would become a reality even for those that, of us that are struggling today. In Jesus' name, amen.